This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. Receiving a cancer diagnosis is challenging for anyone, but it can be especially so for older adults who are already living with other medical and cognitive issues. So how can treatment and support for older adults look beyond their cancer diagnosis to the other medical and social needs as well? Here to share more about the need for combined geriatric oncology services are consultant geriatrician Dr. Terence Ong and clinical oncologist Dr. Nisha Sharif both from University Malay Medical Centre. I'll also be asking them more about a pilot senior oncology clinic that they are running at UMMC later on. But first, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice to meet all of you here. Yes, glad to have both of you in the studio today. Um, now I'm going to start with a very broad question. I'll start with you, Dr. Nisha. You know, when we talk about age and cancer, we often hear that, yes, older adults are at higher risk of developing many types of cancer, but why exactly does age increase that risk? So once we accumulate our age, as you can see, we're exposed to more and more years where we have been exposed to the carcinogens, for example, UV radiation, um, you know, pollution, as well as uh, other um, chemicals which we may have been exposed to throughout our, our years. Mm-hmm. And this is what acts on our uh, body cells and our cancer cells react, uh, our cells react in the sense that they ha- uh, mutate and they change. And a lot of the time, the more insults that the cells go through, um, they form a cancer cell where uh, that over time, that's when the risk is highest in older patients. And also, when we are older, we have comorbidities such as diabetes and hypertension, uh, as well as heart disease, which in itself acts uh, through an inflammatory process, which propagates the development of cancer in elderly patients. And another thing to note is that although once we are older, our body functions also reduce with regards to uh, we have a reduced inflammatory reaction and also uh, less likely to have DNA repair in our cells. And that's when the cancer cells are able to develop into um, what it is mm. and when once they're older. So it's a mix of all these different yeah. things that are happening as you age. That's right. Mm. Dr. Terence, what are the different types of cancers that, that you would become more concerned of among older patients compared to someone who is younger? Um, I think cancer is a worrying diagnosis for older people, I think regardless of the, the types of cancer, whether it's uh, breast in women or colorectal cancer in men, which are the uh, more common ones in, in either gender. I think it's a worrying time, lah, regardless of cancer diagnosis, because cancer in itself comes with a very negative connotation. Mm. People, once they hear the word cancer, seem to think, oh gosh, this is certain death in, in, in all likelihood. Um, I think one of the unfortunate things we also see with regards to cancer presentation is uh, the, the majority of people when they present to clinical setting, unfortunately, are in either stage 3 or stage 4 cancer already. So, yeah, I think all sorts of cancers carry with it um, bad news to many people. And I think one of the things that we want to try and do is maybe try and break down some of that myth mm. with this particular service that we're providing. Mm. Dr. Nisha, in your clinic, do you see differences in how older patients might react to a diagnosis compared to younger patients? Yeah, that's definitely something that we see because um, one thing to note is that when older patients present to the clinic, they probably have lost some degree of independence which they used to have when they were younger. Mm. So they take more of a um, kind of receptive role when compared to they used to 
to take more charge when they were younger. So they tend to be more um, passive. Some of the patients, mm. um, not saying that this is everyone, but simply some patients tend to be more passive in uh, accepting their diagnosis and receptive as well because they feel perhaps this is, um, so to speak, part of life. Um, you know, it's part of the process of aging and they develop diseases and this is probably one of them. So they can be more receptive, um, but also the take which they um, have with regards to the treatments which we offer mm. uh, a lot of them uh, don't want treatment because they feel that this is something which they're not ready to accept mm. then but how different are cancer outcomes for older adults right we talk about them not wanting treatment but mm-hmm. if they do have um, if they do get the right treatment, effective treatment how different are outcomes among older patients compared to younger patients so um of course, understandably, you know that older patients tend to come with a few medical problems, mm. uh, commonly diabetes, hypertension, but they could be an array of medical illnesses which they come as well as having the cancer. So we need to um, think about the best balance with regards to, um, although we are saying effective treatments, but we, we usually tailor them to what the patient's condition is as well as their fitness. And um, at the same time where we give the treatment, how effective it is, uh, the data that we have are usually in patients who are younger. Mm. So the, the evidence which uh, we are basing the treatments that we recommend on tend to be based on trials or uh, data which are more targeted to younger populations in the 50s or 60s. So we cannot really extrapolate um, the the evidence which we are uh, proposing to our patients in this elderly population because we actually don't know. So uh, a lot of the time we are we are kind of just extrapolating from the younger population. Mm. Yeah. So you said fifties and sixties. This then then the patients that we're talking about the older ones, right? Say in the seventies and eighties yeah. onwards. Yeah. Mm. Doctor Terence, Doctor Nisha mentioned comorbidities, things like diabetes and hypertension. But what other comorbidities would or should doctors also be looking at when deciding upon this treatment plan? Mm. So I think Doctor Nisha has more to say the nail on the head there when we talk about clinical trials and therapeutics uh, for diseases in general, mm. by and large, older people, frail older people, more dependent, multimorbid older people are usually excluded from a lot of these clinical trials. So the question that you had just now about, you know, what outcomes do older people derive from treatment um, is always a little bit tricky to say with much mm. certainty because a lot of the data that we use are extrapolated from younger or even if they're older, but fitter cohorts lah, mm. uh, who may not have morbid, so may not exactly reflect, say, true clinical practice. And, and that's why we are very keen to push the idea that in t- treatment has to be individualised, it has to be tailored and where uh, a more holistic assessment helps us tailor the treatment required for that particular individual. Um, with regards to comorbidities and stuff, um, as what Dr Nisha pointed out much earlier on, you know, older people don't just have cancer. They don't just get a cancer diagnosis. They, they live with the cancer alongside their diabetes, their hypertension and all the other comorbidities. Um, I remember reading some data from, say, uh, across the causeway from Singapore, where their older cancer cohort, mm-hmm. about what, one in five of them has had a fall in the last six months. Half of them have uh, problems with their gait and mobility. Cognitive impairment is quite prevalent among older people with cancer. So it's about what, one in three of them have some element of cognitive impairment. Um, and actually, if we think about it, you know, when they present to, say, an oncology service or a cancer service, that may be the time also to try and talk through some of these issues because it will have bearing on your 
uh, treatment. I mean, if they can't remember what they need to take, how mm. do you convince them to take what they should be taking? If they've got balance issue, it might not be so easy to get them into a, a chemo daycare unit, for instance. You know, mm. I work in a public hospital mm. where getting from car park to clinic is itself a challenge. La. So all these things have to be taken into account when we talk about treatment, not just about whether it works or not, whether the outcomes mm. are good or not. It's about can they access it um, so forth. Mm. Mm. It's not just about the, the impact of their comorbidities on the effectiveness of the treatment, but the impact of how they can even get to the hospital in the first to place. To access treatment, yes. Mm. Mm. That's something that I think a lot of people don't think about mm. enough. Do you, do you find? Oh yeah, I think we... We have lots of amazing stuff. We have lots of amazing treatment and really effective interventions for healthcare conditions in general. Uh, but access to it, equitable access to it, you know, um, we are fortunate to work in a tertiary centre and we get referrals from, you know, many parts of the country. And that's not always easy. You know, mm. if I say you need X amount of treatment which requires you to come to hospital this... Frequent. Frequent, yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's why... When we talk about the right treatment for the right patient, it's never just about whether it's an effective treatment or not. Um, it's about all the other bits that go along with it. Mm. From the simplest, can your children take time off mm. to drive you to hospital to access treatment? Mm. So, And these things take time to discuss. Mm. So you mentioned holistic assessment, Dr. Terence. What does that mean? Is that not already done for most patients? Ooh, this one I'm going to defer to Dr. Nisha. <laughs> um, <laughs> With regards to uh, when we see a patient, a new patient in the uh, cancer clinic, for example, mm -hmm. so usually we get a referral from uh, a surgeon, for example, you know, mm -hmm. or a, a respiratory physician who has diagnosed the patient and comes to the oncologist for the further assessment as well as treatment. So ideally, we see the patient in front of us. We know their comorbidities, their medical problems, what's their past medical history. Um, but a lot of the time, uh, we seeing an elderly patient in the clinic, we don't quite have the tools. We are not trained to use the geriatric assessment tools in mm -hmm. order to properly um, assess their risk. Um, do they have any undiagnosed geriatric syndromes, for example, that we certainly, it's not in our training to identify. So this is where I feel um, linking up with our geriatric colleagues is a huge bonus because uh, like Dr. Terence said, it boils down to um, the unseen things which are going to affect the patient's ability to comply to the treatment. So compliance is really important as well as the toxicity of the treatment which they're going to receive. So with regards to our general assessment, which we do is usually, um, of course, we see the medical illnesses, but we also kind of do this eyeball method where we look at their functioning um, status, like what can they do at home? Are they able to be independent, um, mm. going to the bathroom, walking, uh, eating? Are they active? Do they go out and see their friends? Are they driving? So a lot of the time, this doesn't quite translate into how well they are going to tolerate the treatment. So mm. this eyeballing, I feel, is very subjective. What we are trying to introduce is something more objective where there might actually be scores, you know, we're able structured. to... More structured. And we're able to get a percentage based on previous um, uh, studies which have shown that perhaps with this number of risk factors, you are going to get X percentage of uh, side effects from chemotherapy, for example. And therefore, this may open our eyes to perhaps being a bit more gentle with the patient if the patient is um, going to have a high risk of side effects. Mm. We'll get into this this program in a bit, but Dr. Mm -hmm. Nisha, so then are you saying that right now there is very limited cooperation between, say, someone like you, an oncologist with a geriatrician, when an old, a much older patient comes into your clinic? 
What do you think, Darren? <laughs> prior, prior to our, I mean, prior to our program, because did I you think get a lot of referrals. Yeah, because I think yeah. people understand that a lot of our resources across all our hospitals are limited. So I guess it's just to get a better understanding, mm-hmm. right? So does that mean that there is fewer chances, more barriers towards better cooperation between people from different specialisations? Um, as a geriatrician, we are always on the lookout for <laughs> collaboration mm-hmm. because we know that. Older people exist across the healthcare service. Mm-hmm. They are in cancer services. We're talking about that today, but they exist in orthopedic surgery uh, and so forth. And it's how we can try and support better care. Mm-hmm. Not that we are egoistic and we think very highly of us that we can save the world. No, but it's just how we can help contribute to, at the end of the day, um, better care for older people. So. Prior to us doing this together, formally collaborating, because we we were already getting referrals from oncology colleagues. They were already referring people to us. Mm. But what we felt we should try to do is take this one step further with it being an ad hoc thing, a referral thing, which means, you know, one clinic referring to another clinic. Why not we try and streamline this so that, and we've already alluded to the logistic challenges of coming to hospital earlier. Why not we do it together? Mm. Why not we do it in a setting where everybody can be in the same room and, and chat through all these things? We do all the assessments at the same time point. Can we sort of streamline this formally? Mm. And and that's where we feel this collaboration should proceed on. It's not just referring a referrals type service, but when where there is really joint engagement la, mm. uh, where we both have the same goals, same vision, same aspiration, or the same ones la, with the patient with regards to better outcomes. Mm. All right. We'll go for a quick break now and continue this discussion when we come back on the show with me today are consultant geriatrician Dr. Terence Ong and clinical oncologist Dr. Nisha Sharif, both from UMMC. And we are talking about the need uh, or the role of combined geriatric oncology services, especially when talking about much older patients who have been diagnosed with cancer. We'll be right back after a few messages. Keep it here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. You are listening to an episode of our Healthy Aging series. We are talking about um, what happens when cancer and aging collides, especially among old, much older patients. Um, and to discuss today's topic, I'm joined by clinical oncologist Dr. Nisha Sharif and consultant geriatrician Dr. Terence Ong, both from University Malaya Medical Center. Um, they are also joining me today to share more about a pilot program that they've very recently started to um, see see how the services of different um, specialisations, particularly among both of theirs, um, can help to improve um, treatment plans, management for older patients. Um, So before we talk about this programme, Dr. Terence, you've mentioned that this is something that other countries have done before. Mm. It's not exactly a a new thing to come up with a combined services. Mm. Um, Our neighbour down south in Singapore has one as well called the Golden Programme. I guess, could you share a bit about what these models these programs have looked like in other countries? Okay, so there is certainly greater awareness and understanding that you know, older people with cancer uh, requires a different approach mm-hmm. uh, with regards to their management from the diagnosis all the way to treatment and supporting treatment, um, which is different from uh, a younger cohort or even an, a more robust older cohort. So, uh, and that understanding is on the basis that this group of people uh, will respond differently to treatment, 
this group will also have different needs where you have to balance the cancer treatment with um, other morbidity issues, psychological issues, family-related issues, the social dynamics and so forth. And having uh, different people with different expertise contributing to care um, does lead to better treatment decisions and that translate into better outcomes. So for many parts of the world, what they have, how they've formalized this, how they've organized your service is to have geriatric medicine services embedded into oncology services. And that may be a geriatrician or it may just be uh, a, a physician that has an interest with older people or mm. it's where oncology uh, services upskill themselves to be more geriatric aware. But regardless of how it's done, whether with a physical geriatrician or not, because we know geriatricians are not everywhere, it's about at least having some element of holistic geriatric assessments embedded into the service. And then that service would deliver, just like what Dr. Nisha mentioned earlier, about assessing their levels of frailty, cognition, mobility, um, to then give us an idea of how they would then respond to treatment, mm -hmm. how they would tolerate treatment. Um, you may have the most effective treatment, but if you cannot persist with it because of, say, side effects, then that makes it an ineffective treatment at the end of the day. Mm. So by having formalised assessments, incorporating geriatric assessments in a formal way, hopefully individualises treatment and where it has been running effectively, where there is data that's been presented, it does seem to lead towards less chemotoxic, mm -hmm. uh, chemotoxicity with amongst older people. And that's also translated into better quality of life. Because and I think that quality of life is a, quite an important one as an outcome for older people. Because many of them, you know what, it's not always how long they have to live, mm -hmm. but it's how well they live. And uh, these services seem to be able to deliver on, on that front. Um, so across the, the, the causeway, our colleagues have this uh, embedded within their service for quite a number of years now. You get seen by an oncologist, you're automatically then referred to a combined geriatric oncology service. They plan treatment, they screen for other geriatric syndromes, and then they support patients and your caregivers along the patient journey. Uh, and that's the one that seems to uh, work quite well for our friends and neighbours down south. Mm. A lot to unpack there. Um, but Dr Nisha, a point, uh, on that point of quality of life, what have you, how do you, as, as a physician, right, as the oncologist, how do you balance it when what you want to offer as treatment doesn't match with what the patient wants um, for their own quality of life? How, how do you navigate that sort of situation then? I think at the end of the day, you have to accept that we are in this business because of our want to commit to the patient and want to help the patient. So mm. we are not here based on our own agenda. So at the end of the day, it boils down to what the patient wants. So mm. a lot of the time, we look at the patient profile. Um, everyone is different, unfortunately. So you know someone who is 80 years old, it could be someone who wants, you know, very active treatment or it could be 80 year old who is very happy where they are right now, both with the same performing performance status, for example. Mm. So I think... Um, at the end of the day, we have to respect what the patient wants. Um, we, our job here is really just to share 
um, what the evidence is, for example, what is the best medical treatment that is available. And at the same time, I always say it's important to give patients options. So never just have one um, option of treatment because that's not a good kind of consultation. Mm. I would say always have options. And at the end of the day, with the information that is provided to the patients, that's how they come up with the best treatment that they feel is they are ready to take on or mm. that is best suited to them. Um, at the end of the day, there's always an option not to do anything. And mm. if that's something which the patient wants, given the information that we have given with regards to the benefits and risks of each option, mm. then I think that's perfectly acceptable. Um, you know, that's that's not something that we treat negatively. Uh, we don't turn the patient away. <laughs> Hopefully, that's not what people do. So, because uh, at the end of the day, we are not the ones who are going to go through the treatment and the mm. side effects. So, as long as the patient and the family members are aware that if they don't want to do anything, they're happy with how things are, um, then I think that's a route which is um, acceptable that we should respect their opinions and wishes really. Hmm. Earlier you mentioned many older patients tend to be a bit more passive when it comes to receiving their diagnosis. Do they often feel like they have a say in their treatment options? What if there's conflict within between them and their caregivers as well? Because when we talk about older patients, Caregivers, family members often have a large say in, in mm -hmm. what they do, right? How do you navigate that as well? So we do see that where there's patients who um, don't want anything, but their mm -hmm. family members really want something. But at the end of the day, um, the decision is the patient's. So there might be internal conflicts, which we don't <laughs> see in the clinic that happen at home. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the time the family want to help the patients. They feel frustrated because they, the, the family member who is the patient is not engaging with the doctor, for example, and is very adamant that they don't want further treatment. So this is where it's kind of a push and pull kind of thing with the family members. And it's more kind of an acceptance process. So sometimes we don't just treat the patient, we treat the family members as well in the grieving and acceptance process of a cancer diagnosis. So it's it's um, totally multifactorial. You know, we have to look at all um, aspects. We even sometimes have to speak to the family members separately, perhaps in what the patient wants, I think should be um, utmost importance. Mm. Yeah, mm. I was just going to add to that. I think mm. this expectation part is an interesting one mm. where you have patients' expectations and you've got families' mm -hmm. expectations. Mm -hmm. And the expectations can be different as in maybe they have treatable cancer and then they say, you know what, I just want to be left alone. Or they have very advanced cancer and they say, you know, doctor, I want to be cured. Mm -hmm. So expectations in, in both accounts. And again, patients and families, we have very differing views mm -hmm. on, on, on this and how we bring everybody onto the same page. And I think that's certainly one of the things that I find quite beneficial in terms of what we do with this service that we'll probably go into a little bit later is we have the patients there, we are there, the clinicians are there, the family members, the caregivers are all there. And uh, more often than not, we spend the first part of the consultation trying to get everybody on the same page, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is where you are. This is where things are probably going to go. And these are the options. And let's perhaps everybody see if we can, not always successfully, come and be on the same page with regards to where we all are. And more often than not, we find the older person sometimes do get excluded from this discussion. And uh, I think it is uh, still within our culture where mm. most of these key decisions are deferred to uh, uh, younger caregivers, like children mm. mostly. Um, and we feel always that's a shame la, that the person who has to go through it doesn't get to have a say in it. Mm. So we try not to just maybe tease what they want. And if you tease hard enough, 
they do say something and and, mm. and then when you sit out in the open mm. with the doctors and the families there and you go like, oh, actually you know that's the start lah. Mm. So yeah, it's it's a it's a really challenging one lah, especially with a topic like cancer. Mm. So um, could you share a bit then, Dr. Terence? How does a program like this work? What, how do you get patients involved? Um, what happens from step one? Okay, again, this is where I'm going to pass the ball oh. back to Dr. Nisha. <laughs> um, purely because I, I think uh, Dr. Nisha has been quite instrumental in, mm. in getting this off the ground. Um, she was the one who approached us in the very first place and said, hey, let's do this together. And then we were like, oh, brilliant. Yes, let's let's do it together. <laughs> so I have to certainly credit Dr. Nisha and the oncology team la, for mm. having us on board because um, at the end of the day, we can go to them and ask to do something like this. But without them you know, reciprocating and saying, actually, why don't you come along with us? Uh, that's been absolutely valuable uh, to, to what we've been able to achieve so far. So, yeah, mm-hmm. Nisha. So, Dr. Nisha, yeah, mm-hmm. how does it work? Do you, so, patients come from the oncology clinic? Yeah, so we identify what we are starting now in our practice is that we are using a screening tool. Mm-hmm. So, a screening tool is what it is, where we just have an eight-point checklist where we kind of... Um, tick off a score on the patient we call a G8 score so in patients who get a particular score they qualify for a further more comprehensive more complete geriatric assessment which is what we do uh, with Dr. Terence so we identify those patients uh, as a new case that they have come and they get um, a score and patients who qualify they will will bring the patient to another day um, to have a one-stop kind of clinic with the oncologist a geriatrician and we'll do a few more comprehensive uh, geriatric assessments with more objective tools that uh, we hopefully can kind of uh, catalyze categorize them or score them and identify perhaps some cognitive problems, some uh, immobility, uh, imbalance issues, which we can um, target further with regards to uh, further help or assistance mm. that they need during um, the oncology treatment, which they're going to go for. Yeah, So then we, we sit in with Terence comes in and we've got another colleague of ours, um, Dr. Amanda, who comes in as well, who we sit down with the patient and their family members to tease out perhaps um, what for the problems they're having. Mm. And of course, the option for them to be referred on for further assessment, perhaps in a memory clinic or by an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist, um, is uh, the patient's decision if they're keen for further appointments and visits, you know, because everything is obviously a commitment uh, once more and more uh, appointments are being set up for them. Hmm. How is all that information then fed into their cancer treatment plan? Uh, so once we see that if patient, for example, is identified as having a particular um, geriatric problem, for mm-hmm. example, a memory problem or a patient is quite frail, mm. um, having falls. So perhaps you might want to um, step back a little bit on the uh, more active treatments. So, for example, if a patient who requires chemotherapy instead of delivering a combination chemotherapy, perhaps you would scale back and do a single agent chemotherapy instead, which um, would have less side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, or if patient is unable to come for so many clinic appointments because of difficulty. Um, Difficulty with transport, you know, perhaps mm. we need to um, have more infrequent uh, chemotherapy visits. Um, so it's all tailored because uh, options of 
treatment vary uh, markedly between different types of cancers, biologies, as well as the stage that patients uh, have. Mm. So everything is more like very structured. And a lot of the time, there's not just one option for treatment for a particular cancer. So there's like different things which you can do to um, tailor what's mm. best for that particular patient. Yeah, and, mm. and obviously, as, as Dr. Nisha would feed this back to the oncology team to tailor the treatment, uh, us being there means then we get to tap them into our service, our geriatric service, if and when, you know, as part of the assessments, we realise that, you know, they've got cognitive impairment, they've got balance-related issues, their nutrition status is poor, they've got other morbidities that, you know, this is perhaps the first time they've actually come to see a doctor. Uh, and then we'll then just streamline them and pick them up into our service, uh, which makes it easier lah, mm. uh, for the patient and their caregivers because I can say, you know what, you've got this issue. Uh, maybe you might benefit from coming to see us uh, in clinic and we say, great, yes, then fine. We'll tap them in and say, no, I'll think about it then. And that's fine as well. Mm. Um, but at least we have the opportunity la, to try and do more for them la, beyond just the cancer-related issue. Mm. I think what's really important with this clinic is that it has actually started to build awareness. Mm. I think that's the first step, really, because... Uh, uh, among in, patients or among doctors? Among doctors. <laughs> <laughs> so, patients, obviously, they are there. They are, if we have that service, it's great to them. But even among doctors, among oncologists, mm. or perhaps even geriatricians, um, uh, identifying or actually acknowledging that geriatric oncology is an important specialty yes. in mm. itself is something which perhaps is lost on a lot of people because it's not part of our standard training it's very new mm. um, the number of geriatric oncologists are in the world are actually very few so a lot of them they are more have a special interest in geriatrics rather than actually geriatric oncologists um, because the training is you know um, probably quite lengthy mm. so um, I think starting with an awareness, knowing that not your elderly patient may not necessarily tolerate the same treatment which you would give someone who is younger. Mm. And perhaps knowing that, you know, you need to tap into the geriatrician's opinions and perhaps you need to um, be aware of other assessment tools which you can access, even like the screening tool, you know, where previously none of the oncologists were using the um, screening tool to identify patients who need a further geriatric assessment. I think that's the first step really in... Um, thinking uh, about an elderly patient that comes to your clinic differently um, and being a bit more careful. Mm. How? What has been the feedback like from the oncologists at, at, the, at, the, at your MMC? Well, it was very positive. Everyone was mm. really happy because I think what we are experiencing is that more and more of our patients are really coming in, you know, 75 years and above. I'm not even talking about 65 years mm. and above anymore. So like yesterday in my clinic, I had two patients uh, above 75 years old. One was 83, one was 77. Wow. Um, and these patients are patients who have a cancer that need active treatment, actually. Mm. So, um, you know, in a week, we could get perhaps four or five patients who are more than 75 years old. So we, as we see the need. Um, definitely, it's something which we see value in. However, in our um, limited resource constraint setting, um, to really uh, champion this and make this something, you know, uh, actual service is where the challenge is. Mm. Is it possible, Dr. Terence? Because, I mean, geriatricians are among one of our most limited resources in the country. <laughs> is it possible to, to pool resources and have something like this be implemented, perhaps even uh, either bigger at UM or even other hospitals? I think that's a, a, a challenge uh, with regards to our health service, like, I think mm. uh, to, to adequately fund and resource not just what we want to do, but services in general, like, mm. especially services for older, older people. The way I look at it is very simple. I think where we are able to do it, 
let's try and do it lah. Mm. Where we have the volume because we are a tertiary centre, mm-hmm. we we have high volume cancer referrals where we can make impact. Now, if you are say in a small cancer unit and you don't see that many cancers, then perhaps a service like this may not necessarily be the best use of resources. But where we are in a in a tertiary centre where we have high cancer volume referrals, we have geriatricians who are able and willing to 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 support such a service. Let's try and do it, and hopefully, you know, you you have to start with one. And and if we can somehow demonstrate that this is something that makes a difference, not just with regards to clinical outcomes, but patient-related outcomes, maybe one can become two, two to four, and slowly build traction that way. Um, so yes, it would be great for every cancer involving an older person gets you know this 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 amazing service. But I guess for us, it's just about making a start. Uh, one step at a time, lah. Mm. I know the pilot program. This this program has only been happening for a few months. Um, is it too early to see any impact from it so far? Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's still a bit too early mm. to see any impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're still uh, doing what we need to do, collecting the necessary data. So. I don't know, watch this space. I think, Nisha, I <laughs> yeah. think that's fair to say. I think, like I said, the first steps are actually building awareness. Mm. So definitely people are starting to do the screening tool already. Um, and I think from our point of view, uh, we see it as rewarding because mm. we've had a few really nice stories coming out, you know, mm. and we are le- we are learning in itself um, what the process is, what are our shortages, our shortcomings, um, and how we can actually improve and where do the challenges lie. I think that that's really of value because in the future, if this were to um, start as an actual service. Mm. This is where, you know, this this learning curve is really invaluable to actually knowing how we can improve um, care for our elderly patients. Mm. What has been the feedback like from patients who've been involved in the program thus far? I think it's been good. Well, no one's told us to our face <laughs> that they don't, don't... I mean, they, they moan about parking and, yeah. and all that. La. All the typical stuff. All the typical stuff. But Some of them like to have a chat. Yeah. I feel they're at the mm. time Correct. to work through their emotions, mm. I feel. Yeah, like one of the things that we realised doing this is the, the, the psychological mm-hmm. part of the cancer diagnosis and, and mm. how it affects them. Uh, on that sense, uh, that's perhaps there's a gap that was highlighted when we've been doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, many want to talk to someone about their cancer diagnosis with a healthcare professional mm. and talk things through. So... Um, it's been a learning experience for us as well mm-hmm. uh, along the way how we can tailor this. But with regards to again feedback from 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 families, everyone's left the room smiling lah. Mm. This is a good sign. Yes, which is a good sign, and and everyone's been grateful. And I like to think lah, we have in some way or form contributed to hopefully. You know what is a very challenging time la, for many of these people and their families. Mm. I'm going to wrap up our discussion today with um, a question to both of you about in an ideal world, if you have all the resources that you want, what would a service like this include? You know, what would you want to have um, in to to make something like this work? In an ideal world, I would like. <laughs> clinic space <laughs> that mm. will be a huge help because currently we are working off you know just bits and pieces of like a desk you mm. know that we can actually find some privacy for the patient and having our discussion there so that's not um, the most comfortable for the patient sometimes and their family members and their as family well, members right? yeah so ideally we, we probably would like a nice clinic that we can actually have the space to sit down where we have our um, other multidisciplinary teams coming in the occupational therapist the physiotherapist the dietitian coming and doing their own forms of assessment because 
a lot of things can actually be done by um, our light health members and at the same time giving their input on how to improve patients' function, independence, as well as a coordinator. Um, I think more developed uh, settings have like a nurse coordinator who is actually trained to do geriatric assessments as well as coordinate appointments to make things more streamlined. I think that's at the end of the day mm. what we want. Um, and of course, um, uh, manpower would be uh, <laughs> ideal. But, you know, geriatricians and oncologists are so few um, that sometimes um, everyone has to multitask. Like we are multitasking, you know, doing our actual clinic and at the same time trying to make time to um, do this pilot project. So it's a bit of a demand sometimes because we kind of get overbooked <laughs> and it's quite difficult, but um, we try to make it work with what mm, we can. We do. I think um, I think in addition to what Nisha has, mm. has, has said, I think uh, in an ideal world, yes, we would like to see this, you know, sustained, mm. scaled up and standard practice la, mm. where where at least we, as many older people who have a cancer diagnosis, we can do the best that we can for them, la, which includes, you know, this holistic assessment. Um, so we are hopeful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like what Dr. Nisha was saying, the awareness is gaining, perhaps still got work to be done, but I'm hopeful that we are on the right track la, in terms of creating that awareness about what we're trying to do and what we're hoping to achieve. Mm. All right. Thank you both so much for coming in today. Thanks, Thank man. you. I've been speaking to consultant geriatrician Dr. Terence Ong and clinical oncologist Dr. Nisha Sharif, both from University Malaya Medical Centre, about a pilot senior oncology clinic that they are running at UMMC. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.